welcome to Walk in the Truth podcast. This season of messages takes us through some of the great comeback stories in the Bible. Pastor John Metter of Cross City Church will show us how God can take any situation in any life and bring hope and victory out of hardship. These messages will inspire you to trust God in your own challenging seasons. We are so very glad that you're here today, and uh, I know it's a holiday weekend, and it takes a little special effort to be here today. Thank you for being here. You know, the truth is, God's not done with you. Don't you like that statement? God's not done with you. Sometimes we think God is done with us. God's had it with us. God doesn't have any more use for us, but God's not done with you. The Bible tells us that all the way through from Genesis to Revelation today, a message called, After You've Blown It. After you've messed up, after you have sinned so big, you think you're so distant from God that there's no way that anyone can bridge that gap between where you are and where God is. Anybody ever blown it in their life before? Anybody ever had that moment in your life where you think, I'm far, far, far from God? I want you to take your Bibles this morning. There are two parts to this message. Part one means that we will be in 2 Samuel chapter 11, the story of David and David with this affair with Bathsheba. So 2 Samuel chapter 11. And then the second part of this message is from Psalm chapter 51, the first four verses there. 2 Samuel chapter 11, Psalm 51. Have them both open. I'll tell you when we're in part one, and I'll tell you when we're in part two, and we'll read along uh, together in just a few moments. Back in the year 2000, 23 years ago, a movie hit the theaters called Castaway. The Tom Hanks movie, and almost everybody knows what Castaway was. Castaway was the story of a man that survived a plane wreck over the ocean, and so he is the only survivor, and he ends up being washed up on the shore of a remote desert island. There's no one living there. Uh, He has no access, no communication, no ships seem to go by there. He is completely and utterly alone. It's what I call a disaster drama. And it details four years of his life in an attempt to survive far from anyone or any source of help at all. Uh, It's fascinating, really, to watch Castaway. And his numerous attempts to get back to civilization, to get back home. And at the conclusion of the movie, before he's actually rescued, you come to the conclusion with him that he just doesn't know how to get back. And ultimately, he does shift or make a, a makeshift kind of ship, if you will, a boat, and he's rescued by a cargo ship coming by, and he gets back to society. But for the most of the movie, he has absolutely no idea how to get back home. When I read the life of David, at this particular time in his life, David is in the same situation. He has no idea how to get back to God. He has sinned against God through this act of, uh, of moral uh, decision that he, in an affair he had with Bathsheba, And he's so far from God, so far from his responsibilities that God has given him that he has no idea how to get back. And today, we're going to look at the story of David's life. Would you stand with me as we read a few verses out of 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. That's where we're going to begin. Then it happened in the spring at the time when the kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they brought destruction on the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, But David stayed in Jerusalem. This is the key part of the whole story. David, the king, was supposed to be at battle, but he stayed behind. Now, in the evening time, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. 
And the woman was very beautiful in appearance, so David sent service and inquired about the woman. And someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and had her brought. And when she came to him, he slept with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. But the woman conceived, and she sent word and informed David and said, I am pregnant. Now, most of us know that first part of David's story here. We know what happened. We know how it unfolded. And I want you to see this as we get to the second part that we'll look at in a few moments, beginning with Psalm 51. Now it is a year later when Psalm 51 is uh, detailing the prayer of David as he comes to God in repentance. But it's taken a whole year for him to figure out how to come back. He's dealing with all the excuses of his sin. He's not coming to God. And finally, in Psalm 51, he comes back to God. And here's what we read there. Be gracious to me, O God. According to your faithfulness, according to the greatness of your compassion, wipe out my wrongdoings. Wash me thoroughly from my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my wrongdoings and my sin is constantly before me against you and you only. I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you're justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Pray with me, would you? Father, in Jesus' name, my, my prayer today is that we will see both of these texts with equal weight in how we connect with you and relate with you. And Father, today I know there are many that have walked through the same kind of circumstances David did. Today, they need to be reminded of how difficult sin is and how great your mercy is. And Father, all of us are in some situation in our lives where we are in desperate need of your grace and your mercy. Father, help us be able to leave today understanding that it's truly there, that after we have blown it, we can be restored. And I thank you that you're the kind of God that restores people who wander like all of us have. I ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Please be seated if you would. When I talk to people in serious sin, there's one thing in common about all of them that Tom Hanks' character had in Castaway. And here's what's in common. They don't know how to come back. They have no real idea about how to come back and overcome disastrous decisions and moral choices and illicit relationships. They just don't know how to come back, and consequently they end up drifting further and further away, or at least continuing to be remote and distant from where God is and where their relationship really ought to be. Now, I might encourage you today, I hope it does, that one of the greatest characters in the Bible is a character that fell so greatly and yet was restored to God and to others. I hope it encourages you. I hope it also sends a little bit of a warning to you. If David could fall into sin like this, David, who was a man after God's own heart, David, who, who was a passionate worshiper of God, if this guy could fall into sin, this bold and this public, this was the most public affair in human history, if this guy could fall, so could you, so be on guard. But also remember that even if anyone does, God is there to restore and to forgive and to cleanse. And aren't you glad about the restoring, cleansing, forgiving God that we have? Now, we see all that in the life of David. We see all that in these two texts that, that we read in just a few, a few moments ago. So we know David's story. David's sins against Bathsheba. It's a well-known story. It's told so often. 
And literally everything bad that could happen does happen with David and Bathsheba. They have sex. She gets pregnant. David then tries to hide his sin and obscure it the way we all try to do, and it doesn't work. And David's story reminds us of what we need to know about sin, that sin will always be found out. We'll always have to deal with it at some point, just like David had And we need to understand how to deal with it as well. So today, I want to look at the life of David. I want to end up equipping you with a couple of answers to the question, what do we need to know about coming back from sin? What do we need to know about coming back from a distance from God? What do we need to know? Well, let me give you four things today, beginning in 2 Samuel chapter 11 that we began with. And let me give you the truth about ourselves. You and I need to know the truth about ourselves, our nature. In the account of 2 Samuel chapter 11, we're given a detailed look into David's life. In reality, we're we're looking into his bedroom window, so to speak. And if you dig even deeper, we're really looking into his soul. We're looking into his mind, his will, and his emotions. We're looking into how he deals with the fact that he's been tempted and fallen into this temptation. And we see something about the frame of David's mind and, and what he does after he sins. Let me tell you something about ourselves, not just David, but all of us. First of all, we try to cover our sin. The Bible says in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and verse 6 that after David discovered that Bathsheba was pregnant, David sent to Joab, his commander, and said, send me Uriah the Hittite. In other words, bring him back from the battle. What David is doing here is attempting to cover his sin by bringing Bathsheba's husband back home. And he's hoping that Uriah will come back home like any man would after being at war and being gone for a time and want to be with his wife. And he's assuming that Uriah and Bathsheba will sleep together and that will cover David's sin of impregnating Bathsheba. But Uriah has such noble character that he's not even going to go home. He actually sleeps outside the doorway to David's house. He's such a loyal soldier. How can I I go home when all my fellow soldiers are out there doing battle? I can't do that. I'm going to stay and guard the king. So David has another strategy. He sends wine to him. He tries to get him drunk, and he literally gets Uriah drunk. But even in this drunken state, Uriah still doesn't go home. He still doesn't sleep with his wife. He's still trying to be this loyal, faithful servant. And David's attempt to cover his sin fails. Covering sin is always our first response. We do it from the time that we're little children. I remember being six years old and committing a capital crime in my house, which is to steal the allowance of my little brother who was four years old. (laughs) I stole a dollar from him. And I walked two blocks to the five and dime store. Now, this may date me. I don't know. (laughs) Nobody in this room can remember a five and dime store. But it was a store where you could... If you had a dollar, you could get a lot of candy, and I did that. I bought a dollar's worth of candy at the Five and Dime store. I remember the sack. It was about this big around, about that tall. I went home, and I ate it all afternoon, letting no one know where I'd got the money or where I'd gotten the candy or even that I was eating the candy. I ate it all afternoon. That night, I woke up in the middle of the night sick and throwing it all up. My sin had found me out. (laughs) We're great at covering sin. We're not so good at keeping it covered. That's happening to David. It's human nature. And our first response is we want to cover our sin because we don't want anyone else to know about it. We ignore it. We lie about it. We deny it. We blame someone else. At some point, we redefine reality. 
Oh, that's not a sin. I'm free to do whatever I want to do. You know, you live in a culture where all that's happening and it's okay. It's okay to lie. It's okay to deny facts. It's okay to redefine reality. You live in a culture where, where there is no absolute truth. There is no ground to stand on. But you and I know better than that. And we know there is an absolute truth because there is an absolute God, right? And God has given us the truth. But no matter what's going on in our lives, when we sin, we attempt, because of our human nature, to cover sin. Everything I've just described is a coping mechanism for not acknowledging our sin. And none of those coping mechanisms fix sin. Nothing makes it better. The second thing we see in David's life is, like us, David is trying to make up for sin. We try to make up for sin. If you read all the way through 2 Samuel chapter 11, you get to verse 27. And uh, what happens is Uriah is sent back to the front lines as David is commanded and Uriah is killed. And so word gets back and this pregnant wife who's just lost her husband is in mourning and 30 days later she's out of mourning and the bible says in verse 27 when her time of mourning was over david sat and brought her to his house and she became his wife and she bore him a son and now david is trying to play the noble man he's hoping that nobody really knows it was he that impregnated bathsheba not uriah and we don't have any indication that anyone else really knew apart from one or two people in the palace who are presumably too frightened to say anything about it and so he's trying his best to make up for sin. How noble is this king? He will take the widowed wife of Uriah who died in battle and say, I'll take care of her. She'll be mine. And yet he's still unaccused. Often in life, we try to make up for our sin. We also try to move on from sin. In verse 27, we find this last line in that chapter, that verse, that reminds us of where David stands with God. I want you to see what it says. It's so important. It says, but the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. In other words, he tried to cover it. He tried to make up for it. He tried to move on for it and from it. But that last verse there says that David was still doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Doesn't that intimidate you to know that God knows everything about our lives? He knows about where we are. He knows about what we do. He knows about what we think. And even when we try to cover sin and are able to cover it with it from everyone else being able to see it, we can't cover it from God. David was an incredible king. He had great power. He had the ability to silence everyone, but he couldn't silence God. And he couldn't hide from his sin at all. God is not going to let him move on. That verse tells us that God sees and God knows and God remembers and it's a great warning for us that no matter where we are in life, God is aware of where we've been and what we've been doing. Now, if you keep reading in 2 Samuel, we get to chapter 12. And 2 Samuel 12 is the, is the chapter where Nathan, the prophet, comes and confronts David. If your Bibles are open, I'm going to read the story of what Nathan said to David. It's a parable, if you will, helping the king recognize what he's done. So Nathan said this. To, to David, he said, Now there were two men in a city, the one wealthy and the other poor. The wealthy man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing at all except one little ewe lamb which he bought and nurtured. And it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat scraps from him and drink from his cup and lie in his lap and was like a daughter to him. Now a visitor came to the wealthy man and he could not bring himself 
to take any animal from his own and vast flock or his own herd to prepare for the traveler who had come to him. So she took the poor man, you lamb, and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this certainly deserves to die, so he must make restitution for the lamb four times over since he did this thing and had no compassion. Nathan then said to David, you yourself are the man. Man, that's a, that's a wild moment for a prophet who was supposed to know nothing about what David and Bathsheba did to come into the presence of a king and make this incredible statement. It reminds us that there's no way that we can get away from God when we sin. David has sinned. Nathan has exposed it. So now David only has one recourse to go to God personally. Sometimes we come to that place in our lives where we're given no other opportunity but to come to God personally. Now, by the time we get to Psalm 51, a year has passed since David and Bathsheba's sin. And, of course, the child that they have together has died, which is a whole different story. And now he's coming to God, having been exposed by Nathan, and we come to Psalm 51. You know, David tells us so much about the truth about ourselves. But Psalm 51 in the prayer of David tells us the truth about God. And it's the truth about God today is that's the difference maker because we're all the same. We all have human nature. We all try to hide sin. We all try to make up for sin and cover sin. But the reality is there is a God who knows what to do with sin and how to deal with sin. And that's what Psalm 51 is. It tells us the truth about our God. Notice chapter 51, verse 1. That's where you should be in your Bibles now. The Bible says that David prays and says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. I love that David doesn't go the religious route. I, I love that he doesn't go to some intercessor. I love that he realizes that he's got to go to God himself. And he's got to go directly to God. And he's got to talk to God. He's got to acknowledge his sin before God. But while he does that, he's also acknowledging what he knows about the character of God. You know, the tendency we all have is to run from God when we sin. But finally, after running from God for a year, David is now running to God in his sin. I want to tell you today, that's the difference maker in your life. You can run from God as long as you have strength, but one day you'll get worn out and weary and discovered. Or you can turn the other way and run towards God the way David is at this moment. And it's so hard to watch people run away from God. It's so hard for me to interact with people, talk to people who say, I know what I need to do, but I'm just not ready to do that yet. And they sometimes compromise their, their livelihoods. They compromise their family, certainly their reputation, by continuing to run from God. And they just get to a place where they're finally, finally desperate. It's hard to watch. And David's life was a hard life to watch for that year before he ran to God. But now David's going to run to God. And as he runs to God, he's going to throw himself at the mercy of God. The loving kindness of God is on David's heart. Correctly. I mean, God is filled with loving kindness. The word means goodness and kindness and tenderness. Our, our Heavenly Father absolutely loves us. The latter part of chapter 51 in Psalm verse 1 says, According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. 
The word compassion means the insides of God, the bowels of God is one way that it's sometimes translated. And what David is acknowledging is even though he knows God is a holy, just God, he also knows that, that God is a loving, compassionate, merciful God. And of course, he's emphasizing the mercy of God as he comes to confess his sins to God. This is what I call the prodigal son in the Old Testament. How many of you know the story of the prodigal son? Luke chapter 15 that Jesus told. What a story. What an amazing story of this prodigal son who had much to inherit and demanded the inheritance from his father. And as the father gave the inheritance, the son went to a far country, the Bible says, and spent it all, spent all of it in riotous living. And finally, he comes to the end of himself. He's eating the food that the pigs are eating. And he doesn't have any hope of any change taking place in his life. And he says, this is what I'm going to do. I know I've stolen from my father. I know I've squandered the inheritance. I'm going to come back to him. But I know I can't come back to him as a son. I'm coming back as a servant. I'm going to throw myself at his feet. And I'm going to say, Father, I know I've sinned against you. I don't deserve to be restored to be your son. But, but would you just let me work for you and just let me eat in the same level that your servants eat? But of course, you know the story. It's a great story. As he comes back, he comes back straight into the arms of his waiting, compassionate, patient father who is just standing there waiting for him to come back and embraces him when he comes back. And of course, the story is he's restored as a son and the, uh, the ring is placed on his finger. The fatted calf is killed. They have a big feast because the son that was lost is now found. That's the God we have that the Scripture paints the picture of for us. If you go to Romans chapter 2, there's a great verse or two that talks about the character of God. Romans chapter 2 verse 4 said, Do you think lightly of his riches and his kindness and his tolerance and his patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Ultimately in life, I don't believe that most people think about the judgment of God leading them to repentance, but the Bible says the kindness of God always leads you to repentance. To know he's a personal God that knows you, that realizes where you are. A God who can forgive you and cleanse you and restore you. Now, now that surprises some of us because we're brought up to believe that God is vindictive and he's angry and he's judgmental and that he's just waiting to zap us for our sin. I'd like to remind myself and others that if God wanted you zapped, he would have done it a long time ago. But this patience of God... This patience of God means that he's waiting for you to come home like that prodigal son's father waited for him to return, like God was waiting in Psalm chapter 51 for David to return home. God is waiting. God is ready to restore. I am so glad that I had parents when I was growing up that knew how to love me with a tough love but knew how to restore me when I needed to be restored. I love the fact that they would... They would do what was necessary in order for me to not forget those moments when I did wrong, disobeyed them, or did something wrong at school. And there were plenty of those opportunities. And they instructed me well. But at the end of the instruction, at the end of the, the uh, punishment or the discipline, whatever you might want to call it, at the end of that time, they would draw me close and hug me and say, you know, you deserve what you got, but also we love you and we will never let you go. I, I, I'm thrilled that I was raised by parents like that, and I'm aware that not everyone is. Not every father, not every mother reflects the character of a loving, compassionate God, but we ought to. 
And whether you had a loving, compassionate father or mother or not, let me tell you, God is still loving. God is still compassionate. God is still forgiving, even if your earthly father was not. So David comes to this God who is loving and compassionate, and we learn the truth about this God. He will absolutely forgive him of sin. But as we walk into the story further, we have to also learn the truth about sin. The truth about sin is discovered in this prayer. Psalm 51. Notice what he says as he prays. Verse 3 says, For my sin is ever before me. In other words, I can't get it out of my mind. We've been led to believe that sin is just simply pleasurable. It's just a choice we make and we get what we want. It has no consequence at all. And we believe this because we want to believe this and we don't want anything to get in the way of our our sinful activities. But David is saying something entirely different from that. I can't get away from the sin I've committed. It's there and it's irreversible in my life. I can't remove the consequences of that. Listen, I believe this. If we knew what David experienced and thought about the sin that he'd committed with Bathsheba, it would warn us to never do it ourselves. Verse 3, again, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. During that year between the sin and before Nathan confronted, it was ever before him. And his life was suddenly far different from where he thought he'd be. And if I'm considering serious sin, I need to listen to David's perspective about sin first. Now, you've got your Bibles open to books. Book of Psalms, Psalm 51, go over to Psalm 38, just a few pages away. I would read Psalm 38, but I want you to see it for yourself because Psalm 38, in case you didn't know, was a psalm of David that speaks about how he felt and what he was going through in his sin. The first eight verses are very, very convicting. Lord, do not rebuke me in your wrath. Do not punish me in your burning anger, for your arrows have sunk deep into me, and your hand has pressed down on me. There is no healthy part in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin, for my guilty deeds have gone over my head. In other words, I'm buried. I'm I'm drowning in them like a heavy burden. They weigh too much for me. My wounds grow foul and fester because of my foolishness. I am bent over and greatly bowed down. I go in mourning all day long. My sides are filled with burning and there's no healthy part in my flesh. I feel faint and badly crushed. I've groaned because of the agitation of my heart. It's a study of anguish. God, this is so painful. If I'd only know how painful this sin would have been, I would never have done that. That's where I am today because of my foolishness, David is saying. It leads us to say what you've probably seen before. Sin will always take you further than you intended to go, keep you longer than you intended to stay, and cost you more than you wanted to pay. You find that to be true in your life? The truth about sin is that it costs you more Then you realize, David goes on and says, against you, you only I have sinned, in verse 4. I think we can all acknowledge that David was a man after God's own heart. David loved God and did not set out just to sin against God. But his desires led him to an exhilarating but disastrous decision. And that's just human nature. You know, we do that in non-sinful ways sometimes. 
Sometimes we see something that we just think we just have to do. We shouldn't do it. We probably should stay as far away from it as possible, but it looks exhilarating. It looks exciting. It looks like it'll thrill us, and we're going to try to do it. Maybe others are watching, so we, we just dive right into that opportunity, and it's just human nature. A few years ago, my son, whose name is Joshua, lived in Colorado, and we went to visit with him, and we went to St. Mary's Glacier, which in the summertime is a beautiful, crystal clear, cold lake of water surrounded by cliffs. And he challenged me to jump off one of those cliffs, 60-foot-tall cliff. And my ego kicked in, and I thought, if you can do it, I can. So he climbed up the 60-foot cliff, and we looked down into the water. I could see rocks down there. I thought I might be able to clear them, but I wasn't sure I could. And he jumped first, and then I knew I had to jump after that. Again, it was one of those moments where I really shouldn't have done that. But, I mean, there were people watching. He had just jumped, and... I was looking, I was kind of longing to do it, I was kind of leaning into it, and finally I leaned so far into it, I went off the cliff. I, I'm, I'm standing here today, so I am alive, the story ends okay. <laughs> but I did hit the rock, and I did end up with all kinds of bruises on my other side, you know. <laughs> will I ever do that again? No, I will not. It sounds kind of like that. We look at something, we rationalize in our minds, I could probably do that. I might even be able to get away with that. And we look for a while. We long for it for a while. We justify it in our minds. After a while, we lean that way, and before too long, we leap. This is what happened to David. In fact, the Bible describes sin happening this way with all of us in James chapter 1. James says, let no one say when he's being tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Now put David on that rooftop for just a moment. He sees Bathsheba bathing. He sees that she's beautiful. He sends an invite. All of those things should not have taken place. And the inevitable conclusion takes place. And I want you to know today, sin always takes the step-by-step, decision-by-decision path. It never just happens. It never explodes on the scene. It never just shows up. We look and we linger and we long for something and we lean towards it before we leap. That's just how sin works in any kind of sin. And I want you to be aware of this because you don't need to be looking and you don't need to be longing. You don't need to be leaning in that direction. Temptation's not a sin, but the second look is, and the leaning and longing and lingering is. Because the inevitable conclusion is you're going to leap at some point and be in the same place that David was at the end of his sin. And you do it all along knowing the character of God, His holiness, and his desire for your life. You know when you sin willingly that you are really offending the character of a God who has perhaps already forgiven you if you're a believer in Christ and a God who's promised to forgive you if you repent and you are mocking his character. To know his character and still sin is the worst thing. John Bunyan years ago made this statement. He said, sin is the dare of God's justice, the rape of his mercy, the jeer of his patience, the slight of his power, and the contempt of his love. 
That's a strong statement. All these were happening in David's life, and he was acknowledging that his sin was before him, and his sin was against holy God. Listen, when you sin, you don't just sin against somebody else, even though others are involved in the collateral damage. You mainly sin against God. It is God that's caused you to walk with him. It's God that's caused you away from the behavior that the rest of the world is involved with. In verse 5, David says one more thing. He says, in sin, my mother conceived me. It's just a reference to original sin. The idea is that I am prone to wander. We have an old hymn that we sing from time to time. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I've got to tell you today, you're prone to wander too. I'm prone to wander as well. That's human nature. That's sin nature that we have been saved from by the power of Jesus Christ. Amen. You need to know about sin for you to come back to God. And finally, you need... To remember, sin is always a setback. Sin is never a secret. Sin is not the end. And aren't you glad it's not the end? But I want you to see one more thing, and that is the truth about repentance. By the time you get to verse 6 of Psalm 51, David is really, really breaking through. He's really becoming clean before God. He says, Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom i consider this a breakthrough verse because david is saying i know what you want god you want me to be transparent and honest before you you want me to not try to hide anything from you or from anyone else i just need to bear my soul before you and be completely transparent with you so there will be no deception between you and myself God will never deceive us, but we often try to deceive God. And David is at this place where he says, no more of that. No more of that. I'm going to be real with you. Repentance begins by being honest with yourself and your actions and taking ownership of them. And if that happens, cleansing and confession are there. This is what happens when we confess and repent of our sin. It's spelled out in verses 7 and 8. And nine, David says, on this side of God's cleansing, purify me and I shall be clean. He knows where he wants to be on this side of God. He says, cleanse me. And on this side of that cleansing, I will be whiter than snow. He says in verse eight, the bones you've broken will rejoice on this side. He says, my sin that separates me, you will blot out on this side and remember no more in other words in his prayer he's saying i know what's going to happen i'm on this side of you i'm separated from you but as i confess my sin i'm going to be brought over here to cleansing as i have these broken bones from the sin i know those same bones are going to have joy again because you're going to cleanse me and forgive me folks what david is telling us is the before and after of repentance, which is also the before and after of the gospel. Did you know that before the gospel, you are always over here? Your sin is always before you. You have no way of getting out of your sinful life and your sinful separation from God. But after Jesus Christ dies on the cross, your sin is removed from you, placed on him. He forgives you, and you are now in a new place of restoration. Aren't you glad about that? The cross of Jesus means you move from being distant from God to being close to God. Amen. And David is saying those kinds of words in Psalm chapter 51. This is good news for sinners and prodigals. 
It's good news for every single one of us, like a sunrise after a long night of difficulty and anguish. This conclusion in Psalm 51 is such a bright spot in David's life. Now, now make no mistake, his life after the sin was compromised in a number of ways because of the consequences for his sin. You, you can choose your sin, but you can't choose your consequences. And some of those things happened to David. He lost his son. He lost some of his reputation. He was restored to the throne, but he was still known for this adulterous affair. But God did restore him back to a relationship with God. Let me ask you today, do you hear the call to come back to God? Do you hear the invitation of a loving father who says, it doesn't matter how far away you are. You can be as remote as the most remote desert island imaginable, and I can still bring you back if you will just turn to me. I love one of the last lines of Psalm 51, verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, ye will not despise. David talks about what kind of sacrifices God does not want or honor, but he talks about one that God will honor, and that is a broken heart and a broken spirit, which takes us right back to the prodigal. That prodigal son in the parable that Jesus told was so far away, so broken, had no answers, no way to get back. So he devised his own plan. I'll come back and be a servant. And that loving father was waiting to restore him to become a son again. I want to leave you with that truth today, that truth about God. After looking about the truth about yourself, the truth about sin, I want you to, to walk away knowing the truth about God. When we turn and we come to God, he reaches out and restores us. And in whatever way you come back to him through this repentance, whatever time you come back to him, however far away you have been, you'll be perfectly restored to a God who forgives and cleanses and transforms. I wonder how many of you today need to make a decision to take steps towards God. Maybe you've never taken any steps towards God. I, I, t I would say that one of the greatest experiences of your life, if not the greatest experience of your life, is to take one step towards God and watch him meet you there. Today we have decision stations that will be available for you. Take a step towards God by telling someone you want to take that step towards God. They'll walk with you, pray with you through that decision. Those decision stations are at the back of our services as you walk out today in just a few moments. You can't miss them. They're there. The people that are there cannot wait to talk with you and visit with you. But I would tell you today, that you don't need to wait a year before you come back to God if you're in sin. Don't do what David did in the sense of how long it took him. Go back to God quickly. Go back to God directly. Or if you're coming to him for the first time, come today. He's there. He's ready for you. My first invitation is for you to do that. It may be that you're a guest today. A second invitation I would give you is to meet me in just a few moments, in the guest reception room, out, right outside our center exit doors and across the hallway, the glassed-in room, I'd love to talk to you about Cross City Church and our message and what goes on in our church. So maybe you'd like to stop there if, uh, if you've already made the spiritual decisions you need to make today. A third invitation would be bring someone with you next week. There are invite cards as you leave today. You know, week by week as we walk through this, God's not done with you. It's a great opportunity for you to reach out to someone that thinks God is done with them. 
Next week, I'm looking at the life of Peter who denied Christ three times. Can you imagine denying Christ three times and being so disillusioned with Jesus that you would do that, but Jesus restored you? We'll look at that next week. Would you stand with me for prayer? Father, I am so thankful for the good news of the gospel, so thankful for David's life on display so that we would not have to walk that way into sin. But, Lord, I'm also thankful that his prayer shows us how to come back to you and that you are a God filled with loving kindness and compassion. Today there are many in the room that need to think through where they stand with you and what next steps they need to take. I pray that you'll give them the courage and the boldness to take these next steps and come to you today. Father, thank you so much that you are the loving Father in the story of the prodigal son, that you are waiting endlessly for us to return. Lord, let us return to you today. I thank you for this. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.